0: We will be talking today to Gavin Hudson, uh, who is the chief executive of Tongard Hewlett. Chris, you've uh, been following the Tongard Hewlett story. This is the first time we've had a chance to bring Gavin Hudson onto our webinars. But I'm sure you've lined up quite a few interesting questions.
1: Sure, there are lots of questions. I think Gavin joined a company where he thought there was 10 billion equity, uh, as stated in the annual financials. And then before he knew it, he, was, he only had four billion, you know, once they come to grips with what was true or not. So I've certainly got a few questions.
0: David, we've been following the Tonga story for a long, mm. long time with Peter Stader uh, mm. and his uh, rise and fall in many ways. It was a big surprise to see that there'd been mismanagement of the financials over a, a long period. But I guess it's not something that we are unused to now in South Africa.
2: No, and that's where the questions arise. You know, those are the questions we ask Gavin. It's not his fault or we're not pointing at him, but we are still trying to work out how these things happen because, um, you know, unless you're a Chris and you really dig deep down into the numbers and start analysing every number that comes out, for most people who read the accounts, you know, we get a, a broad view. But the question is, we rely very heavily on the non-executive directors who are there as, uh, you know, to, to, to watch over the board. And also, you rely on the auditors. And if you can't rely on them, well, who do you rely on? So I think those are the questions that I keep asking of corporate South Africa as more and more scandals erupt, you know, around a number of issues. So... Yeah, you know that's that's the kind of line that I want to pursue in asking Gavin and how far this has gone back.
0: It's so interesting. uh, Before we get, we're going to be talking uh, lots about Tong Hewlett in the next little while. But uh, going back for the past week, with the Sassel numbers coming out or or the Sassel announcement coming out on Friday, you really helped us out there, David. Because a few weeks ago, when we had Sassel in our portfolio having bought at 28 grand, they're sitting at 145. either due to retail investors in America playing with uh, the Sassel shares. And, well, we sold. And I think those who followed us are feeling a lot more comfortable now. But but what do you make of the Sassel announcement on Friday?
2: Well, they're not out of the woods yet. You know, they've still got heavy debt, which should never have been there. And uh, they're relying very heavily on on selling assets. I think the price that they're getting for 50% of their uh um, you know, the processes in, in late Charles of the of the production there, it, the, the 50% that they're getting for the assets, I think is, is less than we were expecting, uh, number one. And I think the second thing is that they're going to rely very heavily on oil prices and on chemical prices to get through over the next few months. So they're not out the woods. They haven't completely put put aside the fact that they might have to raise money, which could be as much as 30 billion rand in a rights issue. So I, I, you know, for me, you don't have to look for trouble where you find companies like this, which are facing heavy debt. You know, there's there so many other businesses that you can invest in. We like to watch it, but I still think there's the issues ahead.
0: Chris, you've been an activist or a shareholder activist for a while. People might not remember that you, at your time in Unit Trusts, were the rockstar investment manager in South Africa when you were running BOE Unit Trust. Is Sassel not one of those companies that your shareholder activism should be focused on?
1: Oh, definitely should, Alec. Um, you know, the one thing that stands out, uh, you know, I had quite good insights into Tongaart and of course, I did an immense amount of work. So it, it's literally months and months of work. And, you know, you can't do that in too many places. So we need more activists and we need more people who prepare to do the detailed work. Um, you know, of course, there was one other guy who was really good on Tonga, art, and that was Dave Woolam. Uh, you know, who really did a great job. You know, towards the end of study's tenure, Dave got involved. But he did a great job but if you speak to Dave he'll also tell you you know that's months of detailed Mm -hmm. meticulous work corroborating it with outside sources and it's an extraordinary amount of work and you you can only do so much of course from a top-down perspective you can often see that these companies are mismanaged if you look at whether they align with shareholder value You'll generally see all of them aren't. in other words, they don't they haven't instilled the owner managed culture by aligned incentives or share interests. And you know I, I think in South Africa I don't want to invest in any company which isn't which doesn't have a owner managed culture. It's just too risky with the weak economy and you know the disclosure problems. I don't know if that all makes sense. It,
0: it does, but getting back to Sassel itself. Is that something that you've been paying attention to? I'll show you in a minute why I'm asking this is, uh, and I'm showing the, the ADR, which we can see on the screen. The SASL ADR, in other words, that's the share price of SASL on the American stock markets. It's come down a long, long way from where it was, well, in the past year alone, but let's just go back five years. And as you can see there, it was trading at $30 a share, and it's now around $7 a share. And Part of or the major part of this reason is what they did in Louisiana, and now they've gone and sold off half of their Louisiana investment of over 10 billion dollars for just two billion dollars. So it kind of crystallizes, if you like the, the the cost of that investment. Is that not something, given that there's so many thousands or tens of thousands of South African shareholders involved that uh, you would be wanting to get your teeth into?
1: I wouldn't mind looking at it. I am sort of keeping tabs on it. What is noticeable, that whole sector, if you go and have a look, just look at Exxon Mobil, uh, I see there's a company called Next Era Energy. It's just now surpassed ExxonMobil's market cap. So these things are genuinely running into serious headwinds. And, you know, Exxon's a well-run company. So their headwinds and... I know Sasol, just from picking up bits and pieces, their project management's been terrible, misaligned incentives, basically apathetic shareholders. I'm not in a rush. I think they're better things, easier things to get a handle on quickly.
0: David, from your perspective, ExxonMobil, it's down this year from around $80 a share to, well, more than and it's lost more than 50% at $32 at the moment. Mm-hmm. We've got a a really nice podcast from the Wall Street Journal where they dug deep into ExxonMobil. And they're taking a bet on oil and gas and completely moving away uh, from renewables, not interested in renewables at all, which is uh, where you get someone like BP who's going – aggressively into renewables. Is the market maybe overestimating ExxonMobil? And I, I'm asking this because mm-hmm. Chris is right. When we look at Sassel, we should be looking at their peer group.
2: You're going to find over the next decade, huge pressure on fossil fuel. And the problem is, you know, regardless of whether we use it or not, and we're still going to use it, it's when you sit in the boardroom and someone attacks you for, for where you're going and for your exploration and so on. That's where the problem's going to be. It's going to be boardroom problems. And I recall once we were talking, I think, on a podcast, remember, and we were talking about Cecil and we were talking about the benefits So this was maybe a year or slightly more than that. And a lady phoned in from Cape Town and got hold of us because of the issues that Cecil have in Secundo with clean air. And suddenly you're backpedaling and having to defend ourselves for the call that we made. So, And that was, that was light compared with what's going to happen. So whether you like it or not, I think the one thing that's going to come out of the mood that we're in at the moment, and I'm talking the pandemic, is that people are going to reflect on their lives again. Okay? So I think that things are going to hot up against uh, energy companies. So if you're not in renewables, I think the, the problems are going to be at boardroom level and uh, you're going to choose to, to move away from that, you know, from those businesses. So from that point of view, I remain very, very reluctant, despite the fact that they might be crying out from a value point of view.
0: What were the other things in the past week, Dave, that caught your attention?
2: Plenty. I mean, we can't ignore what happened on Friday with President Trump. And uh, he's in the limelight again as well. But I think the big concern was whether or not or how ill he was. And the problem, you know, the problem even now we're not getting, no one's uh, believing The the statements that are coming out. So we're very, very concerned. But markets, the fact that he's been seen, that he's been, uh, he went on a trip yesterday from the hospital, waved to all his supporters. He did tweet beforehand that he was going. He's likely to be released from hospital today. So I think all of that has just given markets some kind of underpin and uh, they just feel slightly happier. And there's also, he's calling for um, a stimulus package and somewhere down the line. The Democrats, Republicans, and the White House will find some common ground, and I think that's why markets are slightly up today. And we're seeing just better reaction. But Friday was a difficult day, and from a local point of view, we had quite a bit of data from employment to revenue, uh, to the revenue numbers, and also to um, the you know the, that came out of the uh, quarterly report from the Reserve Bank. So there was a lot of local uh, stuff that we had to digest as well, although it was overshadowed by you know by global events
0: chris before we pick up with gavin hudson from tongort looking laterally at what's going on with donald trump he's 14 points behind in the polls suddenly he gets coronavirus he can then uh, rally perhaps or hope in the same way that Boris Johnson rallied when he got coronavirus and went to a hospital. Do you think there's any political shenanigans going on in all of this? Obviously, markets have, uh, have reacted. Uh, but is, is there anything more behind it, Chris?
1: It's a good question. It seems, you know, quite a few of his close associates have got it. So, one tends to think it is for real. But he does seem to You know, they do seem to be telegraphing a very speedy recovery, which makes you wonder.
0: It is interesting. I was having a look this morning at the the Wall Street Journal's headlines, and they say he's getting out of hospital later today. It's the quickest (laughs) coronavirus recovery we've seen so far. Uh, Some people, though, still think he's going
1: to win. I certainly wouldn't discount it. I mean, there's a disaffected segment of America, like there is in most societies, And, you know, it's hard to ignore that. And, you know, we tend to underestimate that.
2: David? You've got the John Wayne type, you know, the hunters, football players, urban white American. And and I think don't discount uh, how they feel about America. You know, they always see the threat from the outside. They think that there are aliens coming to capture their famous America. So it's a different feeling from the liberal left, you know, who are, much more anti-Wall Street, so you've got a completely divided America. We can't assess it. Don't take a bet on it. That, that's the whole problem: is that it can go anyway. I don't. I think a lot of people already voted. You know, they're putting in their um, their mail votes and so on. But um, it's still going to be a very close race, and it's very difficult to call. We we don't really know Middle America, or you know that urban uh, urban America.
0: We're talking to Gavin Hudson. Gavin, have you? Do your friends say you've aged a little? Uh, you've, how long have you actually been in the, in the hot seat now at, uh, at
3: Yeah, Hi, Alec. Uh, pleasure being here. Uh, it's been literally since February last year, so going on in 18 months now. So, yeah, I, I definitely have aged.
0: I, I presume a lot of it was to do with what happened very recently about you selling your starch operation, which seems to be a lifeline. Then the guys you sell it to say they don't actually want to buy it anymore. What happened there? Just, just from a, a layman's perspective, unpack it for us, please.
2: Well, you know, as, as any, big,
3: uh, any big deal, the sales purchase agreement has uh, what one might call a Mac, a MAC clause, material adverse change clause in. And I suppose it is there to protect uh, the buyer, the purchaser, that, you know, when they buy a business, if you've got 20 customers and they're each contributing 10 bucks uh, that in the process of of the sale agreement going through, that you don't lose two or three of those customers, and you're essentially left with with 70% of what you originally purchased when you when you purchased the business upfront. And I suppose Barlow it's Barlow's choice to call Mac, uh, and they, their assumption was that this business would be materially different due to the coronavirus, um, and they then issued us with the Mac the Mac clause on uh, sort of the end of of April, if I remember, the 29th of April. And the, the ambition at the time was uh, to test the MAC laws. And that seriously put a lot of pressure on, on, on the executive in the business and in actual fact, the overall business uh, to demonstrate that there hasn't been a MAC, a Mac event uh, through the process. So the decision that came through uh, was very important, very relevant to your plans. Well, absolutely. You know, we, we felt, and I said it right up front, that we didn't believe that there was going to be a MAC event. It's a complex business. The starch business is a complex business and it relies on, on many variables. And we were tracking those variables from the minute we signed the agreement. And we understood, you know, sort of for how many months uh, we weren't going to be able to supply the alcohol industry. And we knew at some point, you know, if this thing carried on indefinitely, certainly there would be a MAC event. And, the onus is on us as much as it is on, on, the, on the purchaser to call the MAC event. We, we would have had we seen that we were going to trip the 82.5%. Uh, so it went to a third-party arbitrator, which in this case was Rothschild and co. Um, and uh, what, what Rothschild did is they took presentation from both Barlow, ourselves, the first round. Uh, there was a second round presentation uh, by both us, ourselves, Rothschild and ourselves. And then we had a live sort of hearing, as it were, where Barlow were able to present to Rothschild, and we were in the room virtually, we were able to state our case to Rothschild, which is basically the third interaction with Rothschild. And then they had a month to deliberate and and make, and make bring their finding. And you know, obviously, we we stuck with our guns. We were confident there wasn't going to be a MAC event, and Rothschild found that there wasn't, in actual fact, a MAC, a Mac event during the process. So very happy for that. The sale agreement carries on. We've met all the the, the cps the conditions precedent and now it is in absolute you know it's a closed deal uh, we just need to now conclude carving out the it finalizing any outstanding issues with the employees and transferring of properties et cetera, to Barlow. so for all intents and purposes at the end of the month uh, we will give them the keys to the starch business and they will in turn write us a nice check uh, for the for the, the sale of the, of the business
0: the- before Chris poses the first question, uh, there was there is one here from Osman
3: Musa who says, why are you selling a profitable segment, the starch business, in the first place? Fair question. The intention was never to break up Tongaotula, but you know when you're sitting with 11 billion rand's worth of debt and your interest bill is you know around one nearly one and a half million rand a month, you, you literally just don't see yourself getting out of it. So we we had to make some big decisions. We transacted and right up front we said we're going to do three things. We're going to streamline this business and make it a low-cost producer, so take cost out where we we deemed relevant. We were going to sell our non-core assets, uh, which we have done and we continue to do, but ultimately we'd have to circle back and sell a meaty, I suppose, core asset to help us pay down the debt. And we had an agreement uh, with the lenders that we would pay down 8.1 billion rand by the end of this financial year. Uh, Bearing in mind that a year ago, and Chris will know, a year ago, this business was literally on the brink of going into business rescue, you know, and I look at all the businesses that are facing similar headwind at the moment. I know the feeling. um, And it was, it was literally inevitable. If it wasn't for the fact that we had decent assets on our balance sheet, uh, we certainly would have been in that position more likely than not. Chris, your question to start with?
1: Just picking up, you know, Gavin walked into a situation, as I say, he, he thought, The the reports showed he had 10 billion of equity, and then before he knew it, you know, there was only minus four. The stress of handing all of that on a day-to-day basis, the various investigations, the farmers, the shareholders, the multitude of stakeholders. How how did you plan your day to to cope?
3: Well, I was fortunate. First of all, coming in from the outside, you know, I I was a beer salesman before this. So all of this is very new to me. So I think the one thing is coming in from the outside and being able to look at it with a clean slate. Uh, so, so not having any preconceived uh, understanding or, or ideas about the business. But at the same time, I brought on a new executive committee and, and literally the new executive from the CFO, Rob, Rob Aiken. Uh, and then all the other execs joined me shortly after. Uh, and that helped, you know, so all of us were scrumming down together. And it wasn't as if I was sitting on the top of the pyramid and and barking orders from our office. You know, all of us got out there, we rolled up our sleeves, we traveled to the four corners of the business and each took accountability and went and delivered and worked through what they needed to work through. It has been busy. I mean, it's been seven days a week, 24, literally seven uh, for 18 months. And I think for the first time, we're now starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel and very happy with it. But equally a well-experienced executive after, after the toil that we've been through. And I must say we've had brilliant support from our board over the last, the new board over the last months. Uh, The lenders have been very supportive through the journey and equally have our shareholders. You know, so we've leaned on our shareholders for advice and guidance and they've they've been prepared to give it to us. So we haven't tried to do it in isolation of everyone that's been available to help us. David?
2: Gavin, the one thing, I just want to go back to the start. We didn't choose this pandemic. We were put into lockdown. This is not a financial crisis. This wasn't a financial crisis. This was a health crisis. And I think that government decided to lock down businesses. They decided we're going to close the economy. And what I question uh, companies like, like Barlow's, like Suntown, like many others, were trying to use an escape clause to get out of contracts. Wasn't there a moral issue around this? It's a difficult one for you to answer. But one would have thought that you know, in a situation like this, it would be a little bit of morality. And we're going to, we're going to judge those businesses who behaved well during this period. We're going to judge the, you know, the tenants who paid the rent we got, or who could have paid the rent. Where do you stand in a situation like this? I think I've made my views quite clear. But I felt yeah. particularly for someone like Barla World to go back over 100 years plus, wasn't there some kind of uh, morality to say, okay, listen, we made a deal, we're going to get through this?
3: It's yeah, a good question. I literally, I, you know, I remember the first public sort of comments I made about it. I, you know, I said I, I looked Dominique Sowale in the eyes at the time of shaking for the deal, and we said we've got a deal, and let's move on. And you know, it doesn't help delving back and you know, was their decision right or wrong? You know, and I think they made it for their reasons, and it would be useful to ask them about it. But we didn't have the time to to haggle but the moral, morality of, of the situation. You know, we had a, the clock started ticking and we needed to get through to the other side. And I think that's really where we focused our mind. Uh, you know, if we had gone off on the other tangent, you say, well, what constitutes an event? Is, is this an event that is going to be, because remember, you're buying a business at a multiple of EBITDA. You know, in this case, seven and a half, give or take seven and a half, a multiple. You know, is this a long-term impact or is it a short-term impact? We can have all those debates until the cows come home. Uh, the clock was ticking and we had to get on and actually prove our point. And we were quietly confident all along, but uh, we, we actually had to do the hard yards. It forced us into the, a lot more detail than we would have liked to have got through, especially considering we were trying to save save a business and focusing on our on our sugar business. Rather than
0: that. Where I'm, I'm coming from, Gavin, is many people will have a look at this now and have a look at Tongart Hewlett and what you've done already so far and ask the question and whether they should be jumping aboard the bandwagon now. So it's, 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 uh, it's obviously a little mercenary, but then as far as investors are concerned, there's never a, there's too much sentiment that's involved in it. Where are you in, in that kind of a scenario when you, are, when you do get the, the would-be new shareholders looking at this company and saying, okay, well, you managed to have rescued the place are you going to be able to turn it around or when will they know or when, when will investors be
3: comfortable that you've got through the, the river? Alec, I think if you look at the financial results that we delivered in, a, in the first year, uh, now March, year ending March, you would have seen a significant improvement across our sugar businesses be it South Africa, Mozambique and and Zimbabwe. So I think when you're an investor looking at the business and you say, well, now you've sold starch. Bearing in mind, starch was a decent EBITDA business, uh, but the prospects of, of significant growth weren't there. And we understand that and we presented that over many years. But when you look at the sugar business, we see a different story. Here we've seen a significant upside in terms of the business. And there are two ways to look at it. The first is to say, this business is still scoping what was very, uh, what was really a very badly run business and transforming it and looking at the way good business should be run. So that, that's the first point. So there's still a lot of work to be done there. The second is the sugar industry isn't dead by a long mile. If we look at into Africa, our deficit markets have nearly 2 million tonnes of opportunity that we can supply into because we've got trade agreements specifically out of our Zimbabwe business. We've got opportunity on per capita consumption. If we look at the per capita consumption of many of our neighboring countries, they're very low. And whilst you know, I know a lot of people, myself included, would look at sugar and say, it's, it's not great for your health, bearing in mind everything we eat and buy from the shops literally has sugar in. But in Africa, in African markets, it's a staple diet. And it's a necessity that people literally can't get to at the moment because it's often overpriced. So our strategy of being a low cost producer, accessing neighboring markets and streamlining our businesses to make them more efficient. And improving the margin is where we're going. And we're seeing a huge amount of runway in the short, medium, and the longer term on our sugar business. So I think a lot of people sit in the, in the ivory towers, as it were, and say sugar's bad for you. But let me tell you that the opportunity, when you look into the numbers, is significant. And then we've got the assets. We've got the land portfolio, which is a significant asset base. And we would like to unlock that. And we're trying to do that with partners. Uh, we talk about Propco at the moment. We can either sell the property or we can co develop it. Obviously our balance sheet doesn't allow us at the moment to specifically go and co develop, but that doesn't detract from the fact that we have a significant asset and we're able to unlock the value of that asset over time. And we've demonstrated if you look at what Tonga did for Schlangen and Schlanger Ridge, that was all developed in conjunction with Tom unit. So there is a lot of upside, a lot of opportunity still down the line. And then we haven't even started talking about the innovation or the additional co products that can generated through sugarcane, like ethanol, et cetera, that we we're looking at projects both in South Africa, Mozambique, and further afield. So the glass is certainly half full when I look at Tonga Tulip, even though it's only a sugar business moving forward. Dave, if
0: you have a look at this, six years ago, uh, you had a company with almost a 25 billion value. Today, it's about a billion. So we are looking at a business that really, uh, I mean, it's indescribable the way that it's turned around. However, in the annual report, it says that the property is worth 11 billion and that if you take the the money that comes in from the sale of the starch, so that's, that's about five, then it means that you've got a net debt of about six. So, hmm. so I hope I'm making sense in this, but if you start off on the one hand, you've got property that's worth 11, let alone everything else, you've got debt of six, that would say five billion rand. And looking at a market cap, that's a lot higher than it is at the
2: moment. The only problem is that property is, is worthless until, it be, until you can sell it or convert it into something that's going to be of use to someone else. In essence, you're absolutely right. Any potential buyer will look at it and say, we've got all this property. But the problem poor old Gavin's facing is that we're in an economy where I don't think everybody's rushing out and wanting to develop this property. You know, Before the property was used to grow cane, Um, At the moment, they've shifted the growth elsewhere or alternatively, they're still growing cane on it. So it's got to be a a useful asset. The question that I'm going to, and I'm sorry Chris is offline because he knows the numbers a lot better than than I do, but you're dead right, Alec. We go to 6 billion in debt. And the question I want to ask Gavin is that, how long does it take before you can offset this negative value? Because at the moment, if you look at the accounts, The equity is actually a negative, you know, it's it's a negative value, which means that they're not really trading as a going concern. It's a bit harsh, but how long is it going to take, you know, before you can generate the working capital to work your way out of this negative position?
3: It is is an interesting question that, and I think when you looked at our financials for the year ended uh, now in March, you'd see a significant improvement. And we're seeing that trajectory continue with our sugar business. And I think when we get to the interims, again, I think the, the market is going to get an additional confidence that this business, is, it's not a one off adjustment. It's not a one off where we cut costs, but we're not fixing the underlying metrics. We have to change the capital structure of our business. And I think you know, that's the work we're busy doing at the moment. And the first part of that was obviously selling a meaty asset like our starch business. We now go and look at what is the carrying capacity of the remaining part of our business. And we're seeing that ticking up nicely now. You know, for the first time, we've been pulling decent dividends out of Zimbabwe, and, uh, you know, we've committed to take out just circa 250 million rands worth of dividends out of Zimbabwe. We're seeing the sugar business, South Africa, Shanks marked improvement uh, over uh, last year, and we've seen it into last year, and we continue that, that trend this year. And we also our Mozambique business is performing exceptionally well, and we've had a great crop. And our refinery that was commissioned last year, that we did about 30, 36,000 tonnes, We'll see that go over 40, 40, closer to 60,000 tonnes if all goes well in this year. So certainly we're going to start getting the confidence back in our business, uh, tweaking the capital structure, and I think we'll start being able to put debt against the business where it belongs. And that's where the consumer confidence comes back. The selling of property also helps us continue paying down debt, and we are busy dealing with various parties at the moment, some local but there are also some international players that are are looking at our property portfolio with a lot of interest. And we're obviously excited about that because we can unlock immediate value through that process. Chris, your question.
1: I've been very impressed as as to how quickly you've affected a turnaround, notwithstanding how difficult it is to turn around a big ship like Tonga with all that's going on. But as an analyst, what guidance can you give us as to how many efficiencies you can take out the business or bring into the business? You know, what's the scope of the efficiencies you can bring to this business? We, we know it was badly managed in the past. So what would be the scope of the efficiencies? I and mean, then what would be the scope of the the revenue add-on that you think you could bring about by running the business better? Just to sort of give us some metrics to hang our hat on as to what could sustainably be the earning streams from what you've got left?
3: Chris, you know, we haven't given guidance uh, to the market yet, so I won't talk about specific numbers. But what I can tell you is that we are seeing a sustained performance in our sugar business and we're building on the results that we, we, we released recently. So, you know, the guidance here is that we're continuing with the trajectory and it is a sustainable number. And what we, when we're looking at the efficiencies, what additional efficiencies we can bring into the business, we're expanding our scope. This is not just about cutting costs you know, through the income statement, but it's about generating additional revenue at the top line. And here we're looking at our export market and our deficit markets. And there we're making significant progress. Plus, we've got the, the additional uh, innovation pipeline that we're busy working on. And I think as we get to our interims, we'll start being able to give a lot more guidance to the business. We have been busy and to understand the cost structure of this business has taken us a significant amount of time. You have to bear in mind, when I started here with Rob, beginning of last year, there wasn't something like management accounts on a monthly basis. There wasn't information available to actually track the business. It's taken us months to understand the proper cost base of the business. As you'll remember, the the findings in the PwC report saw a lot of the cost being allocated to projects been allocated to cane roots, been allocated all over the place. So we had to really rebase the whole business. And that's taken some time. And we're now in a position where we understand the business, we understand the cost structure, we understand now what headcount we need to run the business effectively and efficiently, and now we can start making progress around harnessing the revenue potential that we see in the business and translating that into margin. And we're making good progress there.
0: David, do you want to come in with your
2: next question, please? The one question I have for Gavin is, is on Zim. It's not, the, it's not the main question, but just looking through the numbers, you know, there's still a very heavy reliance on Zimbabwe. From a political point of view, it doesn't seem to have had many issues. I know during the, the past there were one or two issues with Zim getting the money out. I'm talking about the previous management. How do you see that and are there any factors that we need to understand when we look at your Zim operations? Because, I mean, politically, it's not going the way that everybody wants it to be going. And, of course, economically, it's a similar course as well.
0: Just to add to that, is Zimbabwe worth anything, Gavin? <laughs> it's a huge investment that Tonga Hewlett's made. What can you value it at?
3: I must be honest with you. I'm, a, I'm quite a fan of the Zimbabwe business. One needs to go and see the Zimbabwe business to appreciate it. And I think, we, you know, when we think about Zimbabwe, we think about what we see in the press. We think about Harari. You know, our business is down in Shirezi which is in the Lofeldt, you know, we've got 48,000 hectares of farmland and literally, you know, the two mills, Hippo and Triangle, have villages created around them which we operate. And those businesses are all irrigated, irrigated cane. The yields are some of the best yields that you'll find in Africa. So those businesses are performing exceptionally well. Uh, The underlying business runs well. We harvest a great crop from the, the cane. We mill it and we refine it and we translate a lot of it into ethanol at the same time. So the business performs well. I think it's worth a huge amount as a business goes. The issue comes to how do you how do you value it, considering the, the hyperinflation running at six, seven hundred percent. This year to date, we've already taken out a significant amount of dividend compared to last year. So we are able to extract the money. And I think historically we just haven't, as a business, really focused on the best way to extract value out of that business. And we're getting a lot closer to the detail. We're working with government. I've had engagements with the president. We have ongoing engagements with the ministers in the country. And whilst it's difficult to value it in today's terms because of the, the inflation, what we are seeing is that there's a lot of structure going on in the ground, which is enabling us to, to better understand how to extract value from that business. But it's a significant asset. And I won't care to put a number on the table as to you know, what the value of our investment is. It's significant for us, but it is certainly worth, a worthy business for us moving forward. But what's it standing in the balance sheet at? It stands at about two billion, about two billion rand. But bearing in mind the hyperinflation does chip away at it, and it's the hyperinflation. You, you, uh, not the hyperinflation, the translation, and uh, uh, you probably knock off six, seven hundred million, probably around one, one and a half billion rand uh, worth of EBNOS. Chris Logan, your question.
1: Gavin, just um, an interesting angle which we touched on at the AGM, and sorry to put you on a hot spot, but as a top executive who, who's doing a great job, I'm going to throw it at you. There were sort of agreements at the AGM that Deloitte didn't do its job. It wasn't a complex fraud or misstatement, and it occurred over a seven-year period, and that Tongaot hadn't forgotten about Deloitte, and it was likely that there'd be a claim which wouldn't just be about fees and the fees alone are something like 250 million since the misstatement started in 2011. Is there any idea how much money do, uh, Tongard could recoup from Deloitte's down the line? I mean, from the work I've done, we could be talking a very substantial number.
3: Thanks, Chris. What I'm going to do is I'm, I'm going to dial back for a second. And let's just talk about the process with Deloitte. You know, obviously, when, once we uncovered this, or once the forensic investigation had concluded, there were sort of eight buckets that PwC had identified as, as, as area that were irregular, you irregular know, in terms of accounting. Immediately, we made this known. Uh, Deloitte moved out uh, their, their audit partner and their whole audit team. And I suppose, similar to what we did, we moved out our management team and we put in a new management team. They did exactly the same, the same job by putting in a new, a new audit team, brand new audit team across the patch, uh, Zimbabwe, South Africa, etc. And they threw a huge amount of additional resources in to uncover and work out exactly what had happened. So uh, they responded very positively at the time and they worked through, and, and in actual fact, went back numerous years and re-audited over a, a long period of time. As, and the pressure was on management in Tonga but equally, they took it on their shoulders to rectify um, and fix the, the the financials to, to as it were, clean the closet. So when one gets to where we are now, and they remain our auditors. So you know we've, in actual fact, asked that they stay on until the end of this financial year and transition to our new audit partners during this period. Um, and you know, I don't really want to be drawn into, will we take action against them or not? And I think Louis, our chairman of the board, made it pretty clear that we would Certainly approach everyone that is involved in this issue, and I'll take you through what we've done to date. We would not leave a stone unturned to make sure that we dealt with all the parties involved in this accounting scandal. But to to ask me about amounts and to ask me about exactly what we're going to do, I'm going to rather not get involved in that, because I think it is a board decision that will be taken, as we mentioned, at the right time. and we, We will certainly take those decisions as and when relevant.
0: Just to follow up on that, Gavin, what are you doing about the former executives? I was reading through your annual report yesterday, and you used some pretty strong language about what had gone on there, financial mismanagement, et cetera, which is in the public domain and we all know. But what, have you, what can you tell us
3: publicly about your decisions as a board thus far? Let me try and summarize this for you. Obviously, there are many bodies, external oversight bodies that are involved in a scandal like this. First of all, you have the FSCA, and the FSCA have fined us, um, and we've uh, we've been working with the FSCA literally from the first month that we public uh, on this on this issue. Um, and the FSC FSCA essentially are investigating the the former executive directors of the company, and they're making significant progress there. Uh, the JSE. The JSE are investigating the, the former directors of the Tonga Human Board uh, that, were, that were present during uh, you know, the, the, the misrepresentation of the financials. And we know that they have engaged and they are making progress uh, with that investigation. You've got ERBA, uh, and they investigate Deloitte. Uh, in actual fact, they investigate the audit partner who signed on the behalf on behalf of Deloitte and anyone else that might have signed on behalf of Deloitte. So ERBA has already engaged with Deloitte, and they are investigating it. You've got Saika, and they investigate the previous uh, financial exec uh, of the company. So that would be the, C- the CFO and other executives that actually represented Tonga's financial results. We've instituted civil claims against uh, – that's Tonga ourselves. Uh, we've instituted all civil, claim, uh, civil claims against four of our previous, previous uh, executives. And the summonses have been issued as recently as uh, two weeks ago. And there, we're looking to recoup uh, uh, in excess of four hundred million rand uh, from them. Now, one might argue you've lost twelve billion, but th- remember, this is a civil claim, and really, what we can go after is the money that they would have earned, bonuses, etc., and shares that they would have earned on the back of of these results. And then we've got the criminal cases, and we there's seven. Uh, cri- there, there's a criminal case against seven. Previous executives underway in South Africa, uh, which um, is being investigated. In actual fact, uh, we're also providing additional horsepower, as it were, to, to, to assist the NPA with the investigation. Uh, and there, there's seven people being charged in Zimbabwe, and some of them are overlapping. So some of the, the South African executives are equally being charged in Zimbabwe on criminal cases. Uh, obviously, a little bit slower in Zimbabwe, but at the same time, we're also providing whatever support we can. Uh, to the Zimbabwe police, as we're doing to the NPA. So if you just flick through that, there's a huge amount of of work underway, and you know the the adage that the wheels of justice are turning, you know i can, I can comfortably say that they have started turning and we're actually starting to feel uh, the investigations are taking some traction, as I think we can see in the rest of South Africa as uh, as the NPA kick into gear. Into Is it distracting in any way for the executive team and the board? Some of it is. You know, certainly the civil case has been distracting because you have had to build that on, the, on, on, on detailed documentation. Um, and that has been distracting, especially for Rob Aiken, our CFO, and our company secretary. Um, but the rest, you know, what we've tried to do is ring fence it. So we leave our company secretary, Johan van Rooyen, to deal with a lot of that work and I myself get involved. We have a, a small subcommittee that we formed uh, with a couple of members of the, the non-execs and myself. And we try and keep the, the rest of the business executive out of, out of these deliberations as far as possible. But, yeah, obviously, I mean, everything we've done, uh, you know, interesting, whatever you touch does absorb resources and, uh, and commitment. And especially when you're coming with such a weak base, uh, there's a huge amount of information that isn't necessarily readily available that we have to go and dig out. But we have the, you know, we have the absolute passion to do it, and we, we are finding
2: ways to, to ensure that we do it as best we can. David, your last question for Gavin. The one comment that I want to make is that, Alec, you showed us the chart and the shares were 125 Rand. For someone who bought 125 Rand, at 135 Rand, the shares 8 Rand today, there's a claim or there should be a claim against the company, which is not poor old Gavin's fault, but I mean, <laughs> you know, the company is a legal entity. Kevin, are there any claims like that, or is it realistic for shareholders to say, hold on a sec, you know, my pension fund has suffered, or alternatively, even staff who held a share? Is it something that you're facing or could face? At the moment, David, there are no claims against the company,
3: certainly Mm. that I'm aware of. There's always the potential for it. But Mm. what we've tried to do from the start is work as closely with our shareholders as possible. I've been engaging with the shareholders on on a more than regular basis more than normal basis you know on literally every other month uh, we've been transparent with them we've told them exactly what's going on and then i think to, largely what we're trying to do is, is fix the business and fix the trajectory tron- uh, of the business and hopefully the share price will follow suit and you know ultimately you know you, you can you know it's not worth kicking a horse while it's down yeah you know, i think we rather work with our stakeholders and recover as much as we possibly can. And we are making progress, and I think we're demonstrating it. You know, uh, the, the executive to date haven't missed a commitment that we've made to our lenders or to our shareholders. Uh, we've been pretty transparent, and we've been we've, we've been spot on in terms of delivering debt reduction milestones,
2: course mm-hmm. metrics, milestones, and, and I hope to keep our commitment aligned as, as far as mm-hmm. possible. You know why? Uh, because old-timers like Chris, myself, Alec, you know, who've been on the market for so long and who've always followed, you know, Tonga was the, or the certainly the Hewlett family were the Oppenheimers of Natal. And uh, it's, you know, that's why when we opened the show, we were talking about your head office, like almost colonial headquarters. But that's the kind of image that it did have. And it's just sad to see, you know, what has happened. And, and I'm on Chris's side, I think all credit to you. For what you've done and 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 how hard you're working to to turn it around particularly for the number of or thousands of people that you still employ so it's been a tough journey but anyway it's up to Alec to close the show but I think you know I agree with progress we're seeing and the kind of commitment you're making as you know has to be commended and applauded
0: there are a couple more questions from our community. Uh, Zane Forrester wants to know, Gavin, how have you managed to change things in Zimbabwe and now being able to source 250 million rands in dividends?
3: First of all, I think, uh, David, it's been a team effort. So thank you very much, but certainly not myself. You know, I've got a very competent exec that are working with me. And, and we've got some great talent in, in Tonga, and, and I think a lot of them haven't been brought to the fore and we haven't actually transferred accountability to these people. And I think Zimbabwe is is a pointing case where once, once you go, then we spend a huge amount of time, obviously not um, notwithstanding the, the, the COVID challenges that we've had, uh, but we spent a lot of time in Zimbabwe and working with the people. And I think it's just about leadership. It's just about understanding what challenges they face and working with them through it, uh, working with the communities in which we operate and the stakeholders. Uh, It's a great business. It's it's tragic that it is in the position it is. And I take David's point, you know, I I really think um, um, that, you know, had we been given the opportunity maybe a bit earlier, we would have seen a totally different uh, scenario play out for the company. Uh, To get to Zimbabwe, Zimbabwe is just around, I suppose, making reality your friend. We understand what we can and can't do in the country. We understand that exports are absolutely crucial to growing our revenue line and exporting in hard currency and allows us to to extract a, divi- a dividend out of that country. And also, putting a treasury team in place on the ground that allows us to work with the banks in Zimbabwe, work with uh, you know, a team here in nyama in Durban, and make sure that we leverage every single opportunity that we can. So, I think it's just attention to detail, certainly in Zimbabwe. And it's a belief,
0: Johan Urdendahl follows up that question, Gavin. He says, the dividend from Zimbabwe, was this Forex released to South Af- the South African operation and recognized?
3: Yes. Yeah, we've, uh, we've, we've in actual fact paid 200 million to ourselves to date off a target of 250. And that money is in, in our bank account in South Africa. Uh, so we were able to do it and it, out of, out of uh, export proceeds, largely out of export proceeds from the country. But at the same time, we have been able to transfer some local Zimbabwe currency into hard currency and pay ourselves a dividend out of that at the same time. And the, the Treasury team meet on a weekly basis and, and work through the, the opportunity that we face on the ground in Zimbabwe. And we've had a team up there now for two weeks working tirelessly also to continue looking for the, the ongoing opportunities. We've in, increased our export proceeds from around 11 12% to, to a little over 30% now. And uh, it certainly is uh, trying to pay, excuse the pun, uh, the dividends that, that we need out of the country.
0: The last question from our community member comes from David Melville, and it's more of a comment, I guess. He says, uh, for me, one of the best indicators that a company will do well is seeing directors investing directly in their company, putting their money where their mouths are. I am pleased to see that Gavin has recently invested a million Rand through his share purchases, as well as Rob Aiken committing 352,000 Rand. May I
3: ask the number one reason why you made this purchase? Thanks for recognizing that. There are two things here. It's the first time I've had the opportunity to buy shares since I've joined the company. I'm a firm believer that this company's, the destiny of the company is in our hands, uh, and we see the upside potential of the company. Uh, so whilst it, it might seem late in the process that, that we're buying shares. I remain absolutely, myself and Rob and, and my, the rest of my ex remain absolutely committed. And uh, as I've mentioned right at the beginning, the glass is half full for me. We see the potential and the opportunity and we'll continue extracting value through that. We, we, we also employ 35,000 employees in this company. You know The communities in which we operate are vast. So this isn't just about Tonga selling brown and white sugar. This is about a whole value chain that we're protecting, and we certainly are committed to that, and we remain committed. I'll, I will continue to invest in Tonga over the period.
0: Chris Logan, if you would like to pose your final question, please.
1: As you point out, both you and Rob have bought shares, which very recently, and perhaps that's the start of a swing towards an owner-managed culture, which I believe results in higher returns and lower risk. But that's just the tip of the iceberg because really to to get an owner-managed culture at a big ship like Tonga, you'd need a lot more initiatives, you know, not just the CEO and the CFO buying a relatively small number of shares. Is that owner-managed culture something the board is aspiring to? and, And perhaps you could give us some indication, if so, how it will, you know, go about implementing that change.
3: I know Chris, and I think, and I agree with you that the owner-managed culture is certainly the way to go. Bearing in mind that the last year, the this, this share price, the share hasn't traded. You know, it was stag, it was uh, literally off the JSE for most of last year, uh, and we've had closed periods uh, after that with the MAC, et cetera. So we haven't had a base to actually issue shares to the executive in the company. But the board is fully committed to it, and uh, as recently as last week, just before the AGM and after the AGM, we concluded the new rem. Structure and you'll see at the end of this, year, this financial year going into February next year, we'll see a, a large change in terms of how we allocate the short term incentives and that we start seeing a portion of that short term incentive going into, into the share scheme and certainly the exec and even levels below the exec will start being awarded shares to start creating and building this owner managed culture that you so fondly talk about. And we, and we absolutely committed to
0: that and agree with it. David and Chris, if you can just come back quickly and just to wrap and summarize on your thoughts of what you've just been hearing. David, perhaps we can start from you. I'm just looking on the, on, on the other screen here at the Tongard Hewlett share price sitting at six oh. Rand, six Rand 50. <laughs> what were you saying earlier? A hundred or oh, whatever. <laughs> Let's not oh, look right, back on that. Rand, yeah. mm. 125 Rand <laughs> to six Rand 50. I got quite a lot of confidence listening to what Gavin mm. had to say. So, was it justified?
2: No, no, no. And how? I've got it. I've identified 15 companies on the JSE that are ripe for takeover or ripe for huge gains. And of course, Tongard is one of them. Chris alluded to it. You can see it coming through in management. You can see it coming through in the results now. It's a hard journey. There's a lot ahead. And, you know, Gavin doesn't only face the past. He also faces the future where, you know, sugar is notoriously fickle, you know, that price can go all over the place. So he's still fighting those kind of uh, issues as well. But I mean, you know, you've seen from the interview today, you've got the right man there and you've got the right attitude. So uh, I think that if you've got the, what's the word, the courage to hold on, got an option for a, I think, very bright future here. So, you know, don't ignore this.
1: Chris, your final
0: word?
2: I agree with David,
1: and you know all along I've I've said Gavin and his new team are doing a fantastic job. We just can't forget what they inherited or, or picked up on, which was you know a huge chunk of negative equity. But whenever I interact or I see the, the new team, you know it, it reiterates my confidence. I think they're doing a great job turning a very difficult situation, and um, all the best to them.
0: So, at 6.50, are you filling your boots?
1: I've bought one or two recently. You know, I'm, I need to look at it a lot harder. There are a lot com- a lot of companies in South Africa at the moment which sort of fall into this category, you know, where they've been decimated, and I think they're not worthwhile looking at. The only issue with Tonga, with all the restatements and the negative equity and so-and-so, there's a bit more guesswork, but, you know, with Tongard, I think you've got one of the best management teams in place now. So it's certainly an option.
0: That's quite a uh, an endorsement, Chris, one of the best management teams in place. Well, you've done your homework. You you know the managers. We've seen Gavin interacting with you and with David and our community today. So I guess uh, I, I wasn't aware. Thanks, David Melville, for sending through that information on Uh, Gavin and Rob Aiken uh, actually buying shares in the company. That's always a vote of confidence. So it's one that we need to be going and doing more and more work on. To me, the big supportive issue is that 200 million rands have come through from Zimbabwe. And uh, that tells you that uh, it isn't a sterilized ship over there. And in fact, it is a business that could be worth a lot of money in hand, quite apart from being just on paper.